Hello, everyone. Welcome to Quantum Catechesis. I'm Father Joe Krupp, and you are not. And today, today, today is Wednesday, December, the year of our Lord, 2022 or three. It's the 41st of December. Okay, and Marius just attacked a box that I received in the mail, and he is attacking the wrapping paper that his gift came in. You hear him? Yeah. Anyway, today we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to get right after it. But first, I'm going to ask for our quantum catechesis family to pray for Uncle Lonnie. So, <laughs> Marius feels this deeply, and you can tell by the way he's tearing into the wrapping paper. But no, uh, Uncle Lonnie, you know, he comes on the show. He's uh, just one of the best friends I got. His dad uh, went to be with the Lord last night. His dad's name is Edward. So if you could pray for Edward Applegate and for Lonnie and his family, that would mean the world to me. Um, And you know what's funny? Marius loves... Lonnie, and he's just over here destroying things. Like Uncle Lonnie, I don't know if you're watching, but you know how he is. He's usually in a coma the whole show. Now he's like actively sabotaging. So anyway, Lonnie, we love you, bro. Um, And we're sorry. And we're going to pray for Edward's soul. And we're going to pray for you and Beth. Okay. Um, And of course, you know, I got to give my shout out to Celtic Cove Catholic Bookstore in Oxford, Michigan, where you can buy lovely gifts for the family. I don't know. I just made that up. Now he's eating Dad's wrapper from his hamburger today. This dog is pure evil. I'm just kidding. He's not pure. Uh, so what we got to do today, we're covering St. John of the Cross. And St. John of the Cross is a very interesting and amazing and holy man and a poet, a painter, a philosopher-ish um, Uh, So the church has 37 men and women in her history who she has given the title doctor of the church to, and he's one of them. Uh, But what's interesting is he didn't really write that much. What he wrote is unbelievable. So uh, first, in order for, I thought this might be important. I, I looked at the data. I said, I don't think I could do John of the Cross for an hour. But maybe it'd be important to give you a sense of monastery life in Spain. Because the world you and I grew up, or are growing up in, monasteries don't really play a role. And if you watch the movies, monasteries are always, I think, always awful places. Um, And it's really a great disservice that is done two monasteries. There were monasteries that were horrible. There were monasteries that were amazing. There were times monasteries were... uh, There is so much that monasteries saved. Uh, But, so let's get into a real quick snapshot of monastic history in Spain. The first... So what is monasticism? Well, at its origin, it came up shortly after Christianity became legal. Okay? And for the first time, you had people becoming Christian who weren't necessarily ready to die for it. And then when Christianity became the, the religion of the Roman Empire, well, then you had a ton of evil people who became Christian. Uh, because it was the only way to advance in society. Those Christians who had fought and bled for this faith were so horrified that some of them kind of went off into the desert. 
Uh, one of the great monastics put it this way, one of the originals, quote, there's too much of the world in the church and there's too much of the church in the world. And what did these early monasteries look like? Real simple. Uh, they lived in caves in the mountains um, and kept their lives painfully simple, um, usually even refusing to eat meat, uh, all these sorts of things. And it was what we say the ascetic life, okay? The ascetic life. They lived purposely challenging lives with minimum creature comforts, and their goal was to grow in prayer and in knowledge. Uh, one of the early slogans was ora et labora, work, or ora et labora, yep, right. prayer and work. Okay, prayer and work, that's what we do. That's how we roll. They were Amish before it was cool. <laughs> so the Roman Empire was pretty strong in Spain, right? Uh, Spain was very Romanized. And the first mention we have of monasteries in Spain that I'm aware of came from St. Augustine in the fifth century. And I don't even remember what he said. I just remember at some point, Augustine tells us there's monasteries in Spain. Now, what were monasteries as time grew? Okay, as time passed, they became more than a collecting point. Uh, they became communally, uh, they became a place of community life. And uh, over time, lots of things happened with monasteries that changed them fundamentally. But in the end, by the time you get to the Middle Ages, Monasteries were a lot of things. First of all, they were a refuge for the poor and needy. If you were hungry, this was a place they would feed you. If you were, depending on the type of monastery, some of them even had rules that if you came to their door and knocked, they had to take you in, feed you, give you a place to sleep. And there's some monasteries in the U.S. that still do this. Um... They became a place where the poor and needy could find refuge and food, and they could also find protection. So if you were alive in the Middle Ages in Europe, there were two power sources at play, the state and the monasteries. Monasteries became centers of a kind of political power. In this regard, the only moderating force, moderating, mediating, moderating force, the only force that could get the state to chill out was a monastery. Uh, you could run to a monk and find protection from the state who's trying to go get you to fight in another war. Um, you could find, they were often the only thing standing up for the serfs. Now, sometimes they were very much a part of the structure of the state and they were a part of the problem. But more often than not, particularly in the early to middle, <clears throat> middle ages, the monasteries were really good places if you were persecuted or in trouble. They would take you in, they would protect you. Because no king, no matter how powerful, is going to march on a monastery. Okay, how we doing? Um, they were also a good place for, and I didn't know how else to put this, and I'm speaking generally, people of unusual circumstances. What does that mean? Almost anything. Uh, maybe you were born with a physical impediment. That means you can't work the farm. That means you are a drain on your mom and dad. And you and I, our lives are much less practical than theirs. No matter how much you loved your newly born son, if he couldn't help you farm, they would abandon them. 
right? It was often they would leave them in the forest. Well, once monasteries grew up, they began leaving them outside of monasteries, knowing the monks would come and get the baby and raise that child. Okay, uh, I think I shared this with you. <clears throat> One of my friends from China, who's a priest there, he was talking about what they literally call baby picking. That in a culture like China, where they were doing the one child, one family policy for a long, long time, a family that had a female baby would just often abandon it, right? Leave the baby out to die of exposure. Why? Well, there's no 401k, same as it was for these people back then. Your only chance at having someone take care of you is your son. And not only that, but in that culture, boys are much more important. Okay? It's just this Confucian, the way the Confucian system works. So he talked about the explosion of Catholic convents in China. And why? Because these nuns would go out, quote, picking babies every night. And they would just find all these girls who were left outside of their monastery and take them in. These little girls would be raised in a monastery. And what do they want to become? In the monastery. They want to be a nun. Uh, fascinating stuff. Uh, the Middle Ages was like that, too. Uh, it was a great place for women who wanted to learn or lead. Females who felt that fire in their belly to lead couldn't do it anywhere. You can in a monastery. You can enter a convent and you can have authority. You can be educated. It was a place for women who felt that desire to go. Uh, I think I told you guys about this, that secular historian, he's not a Christian, he's an atheist, who said the most powerful force of influence for good in European history is the Roman church which of course is the opposite of what you're taught. But part of it was he pointed out this, women had a place they could go and learn. There was one institution in Europe where the women could say to the men, you're not doing that. And they said, yes, ma'am. If an abbess said to a prince, you're not doing that, he didn't do it. So this was a good place for women to go if they wanted to learn, right, get an education, if they wanted to read. Um, you also had situations where you had boys enter the monastery because they weren't the oldest son, and dad didn't have enough property to share. So dad would say to the son, you're going to become a monk and move him to the monastery. And this is where you get some of the really bad ones, as you can imagine, right? Dad's just trying to save his family from political intrigue, right? We gripe about drama, and rightly so, I hate drama. But back then, drama usually ended when someone got their head cut off. Yeah, not a you know saucy Facebook post. Uh, <laughs> another big attractor to monasteries was for people who, I don't know, wanted to be holy. There were certain people who grew up and were like, I would like to dedicate my life to service and holiness. They became monks. And as you can imagine, they were the best one. And this ties into that unusual circumstance. Sometimes there were women who, in their desperation, became what we would call prostitutes. Although it didn't work as much like now, uh, this was exchanging for food. And the men who used these women also were joyfully condemning them. Right. So what does that mean? This was a place women could go to get a second start. There were actual convents of places for women who wanted to get away from their reputation or where a woman could take her. Um, what do you say? The child she had out of wedlock. 
right? Monasteries were a fascinating collection of humans. And you hear just some of these reasons, right? How are we doing so far? Yeah. Now, here's some traits. The thing you want to remember is the move, uh, it started with caves and it ends with palaces. Okay, uh, that the early monasteries were just collections of caves. But as time went on, as you start gathering these kind of humans together, and as they start standing up for the poor and feeding the poor and garnering goodwill, they become powerful. Uh, yeah. Were monks always married in the okay. Monks were um, celibate, right? The monks, nuns, I'm using a general term and it inevitably happens, oddly enough, that there's someone watching who understands the difference between women religious and nuns or monks and hermits or priests. I know, guys. I, I, I promise. Yeah, I know. It's just this is the easiest way to talk about it. We're talking about a kind of human that sometimes were nuns, sometimes were women religious, sometimes were hermits, sometimes were priests, sometimes were brothers. Some, right? there, there's a million categories in there, and each meant something different. But one thing they all had in common, they were celibate, or at least promised to be. Yeah, let's just put it that way. Yeah, you know. Um, these things that these monastic institutions that started off as caves uh, became powerful and in some places wildly wealthy and beautiful constructs. Okay, uh, and they almost all became focuses of conflict between the church and the state and the conflicts within the church. So today, when we talk about John of the Cross, we're going to see one of those conflicts within the church play out, and it almost cost him his life. Uh, sometimes mon monasteries acquired political power and used it for their good, sometimes for others' good, sometimes for the state good. It often depended who was in charge. But one thing, this period of history like the 17th century, 18th century, is where monasteries started to develop a reputation for having either ridiculously holy or ridiculously evil people in charge. Yeah. Um, this was also monasteries became places where art and beauty flourished. Artistry and poetry were cherished at these places. They're, they're like, you know, in our public schools, they keep cutting music and art out. And it's, to me, the worst thing you can do. Uh, if you want to save a civilization, art and music's a pretty good way to go, according to every civilization. But when, yeah, anyway. So uh, it also became a place where if you were born poor, and you know, some people are just born with a hunger for power. Let's just get it out there. And if you were born poor and you had that hunger for power, monastery was a good place to go, right? You could get real power and it was the only option. So again, you can see why this draws the greatest saints and the worst sinners, okay? Now, in Spain, when you get to the 18th and 19th century, the monastic system basically collapsed, 
Okay, the, the Hispanic monasteries were abandoned, forgotten, and even lost over time. Now, some of the medieval monasteries were maintained, although a lot of times people would plunder them and burn them. And then you'd get this rebuilding from the people inside, but it would be much smaller and very flimsy. Yeah, because they now had nothing. The 19th century was a big one for the, uh, the, uh, for the future of the monasteries. So the Spanish War of Independence brought a lot of troubles. One, French soldiers were quartered in the monasteries, and in some cases, they even just converted them into stables for their horses, uh, or bunk rooms, or kitchens. Um, they would, of course, then cook there, which led to fires. A lot of these monasteries got burned. Um, <clears throat> people began to hear rumors of, well, in that monk's tomb, there's a gold chalice, so they dig up their tombs and loot them if there was anything to loot. Um, so uh, it really got bad for monasteries. They just became a place where people could vandalize or steal or just exercise that broken thing in human nature that says, I need to burn things down. Um, and... And I see this sometimes uh, in our culture beginning, and I don't say this as a scare tactic, but because I truly believe this, there came in Spain in particular this idea that, you know, if we could just get rid of the religious, everything would get better, right? Um, uh, so like just in Madrid, mobs burned down 37 monasteries under this idea that if we really want society to change, we have to get rid of these religious institutions, okay? And of course, what always happens is the people raging against the churches have no understanding of just how much good the church is doing in the community. They're usually not poor people. You will rarely hear poor people rage against the church because either they or their parents were getting help from churches. It's always third generation wealth. And when we say wealth in the US, I mean anything lower middle class and up, right? In every other culture, that's wealth. Um, if you look at where all the rage is coming from, it tends to come from people who grew up the most wealthy and comfortable of any humans who've ever lived. And they look at societal problems and say, it's the church's fault. Right? Same thing happened in Spain. Same thing happened basically everywhere. So what do you do? You get these roving mobs of kids burning down religious institutions. And like I said, Madrid, was 37 of them, which that was all of them. Okay? Now then things began to slow down and monasteries started to slowly rebuild and sometimes consolidating. You have half your monastery left, we have half of ours, let's make one monastery, right? This, and they call this sometimes the age of consolidation. Um, and then the Carlist Wars, and I, I won't get into this, but in Spain they were succession wars. Uh, and I don't know much at all, but... Um, they began in that, once again, convents and monasteries were burned down. And in 1835, uh, during the Carlist Wars, they uh, massacred hundreds of monks. Okay. Now, finally, by the end of the 1800s, um, or no, sorry, I'm saying this wrong. Well, I don't know how much to get into. Is this too much detail? No. Oh, okay. Uh, basically, um, 
a lot of the uh, monasteries, the way they adapted and kept from getting destroyed was by turning into churches. Okay, come to mass here. When monks prayed mass, they prayed it together and outsiders didn't come in. Well, so now it was, hey, why don't you all come to church? Um, and it, it really actually worked. Um, also, the state confiscated a number of monasteries in Spain and converted them into museums, um, which actually helped a bit because these same people who love to burn down churches pretend to like art. I don't know. So they'll burn it down if it's a church. But you take the same works of art and say, no, that's a museum. Well, they leave it alone. Right. Um, and the Spanish monks figured that out pretty quick. Um, and these ruins became places like the ruined monasteries where, you know, uh, Chopin, the composer, like he he wrote some of his stuff in ruined monasteries. Um, and it became a bit of a movement in Spain that artists and musicians would travel to these ruined monasteries and seek inspiration in the ruins. When you get to the last part of the 19th century, um, a lot of the anti-church fervor started to burn down. And again, as a historian, I tell you, this is a pretty predictable pattern. Burn down the churches, and then you find out, oh no, they were feeding a lot of people, right? They were helping a lot of people. And so then the next generation tends to despise that one, right? Every generation thinks the last one was the worst one, right? And uh, that's what happened in Spain. In the last part of the 19th century, um, they started to restore some of these. Citizens came forward, let's rebuild these beautiful monasteries, right? Um, now, once again, when we hit the 20th century, uh, we get an explosion of trouble in Spain, if you know your Spanish history, right? The tragic week, they call it. Uh, I think it was 1909 in Barcelona, where they killed monks and burned down monasteries. Uh, it was a, uh, anti-clericalism is a funny thing. Um, in Spanish and, and in Mexico, I saw a lot of this, that there were people who revered clergy and people who despised clergy, and they were churchgoers. Both of them, right? Which was really funny to me. Uh, but of course, if you know their history, you'll get it. But, um, and both of those forces were at work. And in this case, the anti-clergy, anti-clericalism movement really took over. Um, in 1910, the law of the lock uh, in Spain forbade any construction or founding of new uh, religious congregations. Uh, in 1931, uh, right after they proclaimed the Second Spanish Republic, uh, they burned down convents um, and then the Spanish Civil War. I mean, you just get just absolute destruction of these beautiful buildings, the massacre of clergy and nuns, um, just like in the Enlightenment, or what do you call the French Revolution, right? And you were probably never taught this. When you were taught the French Revolution, that there was a huge stage in there where they were slaughtering clergy and burning down churches uh, in the name of a new atheist enlightenment government, right? Uh, and this happened in Spain too. And again, isn't it weird that we're not taught that? Like, I took a French history class. We spent three weeks on the French Revolution and never, I found out later, talked about the two-year period, which was long, 
where they tried to remake the calendar into a secular calendar and remove any kind of a mention of God, burn down churches, kill clergy. Hundreds and hundreds and thousands of clergy were slaughtered in France during the Enlightenment. Uh, what do you do? Anyway, um, so now you get to the end of the 19th or 20th century, and again, we get a little bit of a snapback. Now the Spanish state and its private companies we're like, man, we shouldn't have done that and begin this effort to rebuild any monastery where there were large enough pieces to, to do so, right? Which wasn't many, as you can imagine. But, um, and again, they did the same thing. Okay, well, nobody's really becoming monks anymore because we killed all of those. Uh, let's rebuild these beautiful old monasteries and turn them into museums or cultural centers. And that's where we're kind of at today. If you go to Spain and you'll see some monasteries, uh, but almost, well, I think I'm right, but don't quote me. Or don't take my word for it. I think I'm right. I don't think you'll find any monastery that's that old. Uh, any monastery you've seen is one they rebuilt. Because they all got burned down in the different riots and wars and troubles. Um, and now if you see one, monks don't live there. Uh, they're museums. They're cultural centers. They're even schools. They've converted some of them into schools. Okay, So monastic life, like we could do a half a year of shows um, on uh, monastic life, just because it's such a crazy history. But that's just a snapshot of Spain. And if you wonder, well, what happened to monasteries in France? Same type things, right? This is everywhere. The only place you didn't run into any of this is Germany and Poland. Really? Germany and Poland had stable, much more stable societies, right? Um, and never really got into the anti-church stage. They might have got into, like, the Germans definitely got into an anti-Catholic thing, but we earned that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, real, we earned that. Yeah. But, like, you look at the Poles and you're oh, when did the churches get burned? When the communists came. When Russian Soviet, when Soviet communists were there, that's when churches got burned. In your lifetime and mine. But before that, no, never. The Poles, man... They are so amazing and so unique in all of European history. Oh, don't get me started. So with that, let's dive into John of the Cross. Do you want to know how we doing? Did I take too much time? Okay. So St. John of the Cross was born with a name this long, and we're not going to do it. Uh, but uh, he was born in 1542. His dad worked as an accountant for a super wealthy dude. But then his dad, this is so sweet, fell in love with a poor woman. His dad was noble, but poor, right? So the only thing he could do wrong is marrying a poor woman. So he married a poor woman, uh, <laughs> fell desperately in love with her, and so his uh, employer fired him. Uh, and they ended up dirt poor. Um, John's dad died when he was three. Uh, his brother died two years later of hunger. 
Okay. Uh, John's mom got him, uh, and they moved. I can't remember where they moved, but she got a job like weaving things, and that helped them get food. Now, he was sent to a boarding school for poor and orphaned kids run by a monastery. Right? Again, that was your only shot. The state didn't do that thing. The church did. Um, he was given a religious education, and he dug it. Okay, this really resonated with him. Uh, people who grew up with him said, boy, he was a happy kid, right? Uh, and tough, right? When you grow up literally most of your life on the brink of starvation, uh, there's a hardness to you that's a bit of a, uh, that you really wouldn't find it easy to overcome, you know? Um, he began uh, serving at mass, and as he got older, he went to a Jesuit school. And by 1563, he had advanced enough in his education, was considered a sharp kid, uh, a dreamer, uh, but a sharp, sharp young man, and he entered the Carmelite order. Now, Carmelites make candies. Okay. I just made that up. Uh, he took the name Saint, or not Saint, <laughs> took the name John of Saint Matthias. Okay, who's Matthias? He's a priest right here in our diocese. Right. No, he's a good priest too. Uh, but no, uh, Saint Matthias is the. My brain just stopped. Isn't that great? I saw all those leaves flying around behind you. Right? We have this little weird vortex in the windows behind Carrie. So there's like all these walls and the wind hits it and makes leaf tornadoes. Sorry. What were we talking about? St. Matthias okay. is the guy who replaced Judas. Right. When <laughs> Judas either hung himself or tripped, remember, right, there's two accounts yeah. of his death. One is he tripped and got eviscerated on some rocks. Um, that's Acts and Luke. Uh, but anyway, they needed a, you know, they needed to go to the bullpen, and they picked Matthias. So he made vows in 1564, and he was sent to Salamanca University to study theology and philosophy. Um, so here's where he first got in trouble. <laughs> okay, they realized, boy, this cat is good with words. He make pretty talk with mouth. And uh, one of the things he did was translate different things uh, of the Bible, different parts of the Bible. Well, what he did was the church at that point said, you can't translate the book of Song of Songs into Latin. Okay. Now, why? A couple reasons, depending on who you ask, okay? Some of it is the church was worried about how sexual that book is, right? Uh, it's King Solomon, who, who, who liked the ladies. Uh, and, um, you know, it's all this poetry about how beautiful she is and how much he craves her, his bride, and how much she craves him. And the church found that a bit saucy for the 16th century tastes. But they also recognized, and, and again, this is one of those things where the people, oh, the church forbid folks from reading the Bible. No, the church said, don't read the Bible unless someone is there to teach you because Song of Songs is Hebrew. And translating it into Latin without any of the cultural context could get weird. Uh, so John went ahead and translated it anyway. Um, and uh, he got in the spot of trouble, but he did it anyway. You know? Now, in 1567, 
he became a priest and he wanted to join the Carthusians. Now, what are the Carthusians? However hard you think monks live, they're harder. Right, they don't sleep on beds, they sleep on floors. They don't wear shoes, they don't eat meat, they'll only eat vegetables. Uh, they, all these rules to make their lives as filled with physical discipline as possible. Um, uh, I think I told you about meeting a group of these cats. Uh, and like one of them I hugged and he was made of steel. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mean to seriously, there's just no fat on them. They don't look sickly at all. They, they glow, but man, these are hard dudes, hard dudes. Um, but he wanted to do that and he found it attractive that you could just be there and write. That's, yeah. Uh, but then he bumped into someone you may know, St. Teresa of Avila, uh, who was a Carmelite nun and is one of the greatest saints we've ever had, right? A female doctor of the church. And she asked John, follow me. Okay. So John abandoned his nets and followed her. Okay, that's a different John. John was attracted to uh, the strict life that she was putting together, and she wanted to get that back into the Carmelites. The Carmelites were going through that cycle I told you about, where they were really hard and tough and generous, and then they got more and more comfortable and more and more powerful. She wanted to get things back on track, right? Let's go back to living very simply and focusing all of our energy on praying and caring for the poor. Um, and that's where you get the term discalced Carmelites, okay? I talked about this a little this morning, right? Which yeah. really, I felt so bad about that. I don't think the kids knew what the heck I was talking about. <laughs> but if you know, there's a Roman emperor we call Caligula. Okay, and that was not his name, and nobody ever called them that to his face in life. His name was Gaius, like every Roman emperor in the world at that time was named Gaius. So they had nicknames for these cats. Uh, well, Caligula, when he was a little boy, grew up living with the army, and they made him a little soldier's outfit, because they just thought it was the cutest thing. Of course, it made a psycho by accident, but uh, one of the things, Soldiers wear a very specific kind of sandal back then, okay? Well, they made a tiny little one for him. And Caligula means little boots, right? So it was a reference to him. You know, they talked about this cute little boy walking around in full armor with his soldier sandals, and they just called him little boots. But when he got older, and I don't know, psycho, he didn't want to be called that anymore. But uh, what was the word? Caligula, the collar, that's the shoe, Okay, so when you hear about discalced Carmelites, that's what you're talking about, meaning no shoes. Okay, that they were not gonna wear shoes, uh, that they were gonna go barefoot or at least not cover the top of their feet uh, and live a simple life. Um, so to this end, these discalced Carmelites, uh, Teresa founded a new monastery and John changed his name to John of the Cross, Juan de la Cruz. Uh, he then located the men to another site and he stayed there till 1572. Okay. How are we doing? Yes. Are people happy? Okay. In 1572, he traveled to uh, Avila to meet with Teresa to be her confessor and her spiritual director, which can you imagine how 
He is, if she, if you're Teresa of Avila's spiritual actor, yow, right? You're holy, because that chick was next level. He stayed there for five years, and he had a vision of Jesus that he drew, and you've kind of seen it, okay? If you've ever seen, uh, what's the name of that artist? Um, gosh darn it. There's an artist who painted it. It's a image of Jesus hanging on the cross and you're kind of looking down on him from above. John drew that and other people have copied it. Uh, not copied in a dirty way. I mean, said, I want to draw like him. Uh, but he was an amazing artist. There's a story. Now, Teresa of Avila was beautiful. And that's one thing everybody in that day and age wrote about, that she was physically a stunner. And John, if you've ever seen the picture of her that someone drew, John drew that. And do you know this story that he mailed it to her? <laughs> and this is a great story. He mailed this beautiful picture of her that we still use today. He drew it. And she sent it back, and on the back she wrote, Juan, God made me beautiful. You somehow made me ugly, which is hysterical. I love that gal. We could do a whole show on Teresa of Avila. She was a gal, do you know this? She would shake the hourglass to try to make it go quicker because she had trouble sitting still in chapel. Anyway, uh, so about, here's where it blows up. In 1575, the Carmelites, who were not discalced, okay, who were living in big, comfortable homes and keeping money and blah, 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 um, started to kind of go to war with the discalced Carmelites. So we'll call them the, the Carmelites and the discalced. The Carmelites did not want the discalced Carmelites to win. So um, the strict rules of the order had been changed in 1432 to kind of liberalize things, yeah. Dolly. Yeah, Salvador Dali. And, and again, when I say Dali copied it, I don't mean in a bad way. He was clear about what he was doing. He was inspired by Yes, him. and John of the Cross saw that image in a vision and drew it. John was an amazing dude. Oh, don't get me started. So, um, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, felt the liberalization of their rules had ruined everything. They didn't feel like the Carmelites were seeking holiness anymore. Now, um, I don't think I'll get into the drama, but there was drama. Kings and popes got involved. Violence ensued. The, the Carmelites did not want this new strict movement returned to the original form. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in late 1577, John was told, you have to leave your monastery. Um, but the Pope had already approved the work he was doing, so he chose to ignore the order and stay. So his superior told him, who was, you know, a Carmelite, no, you got to go back to this one. And John said, no, I'm going to stay, and we're going to bring this monastery back to the original rule. Now, this will shock you, but those monks weren't happy with that. Yeah, they liked the rich, comfortable life. And on December 2nd, they uh, broke into his uh, room and kidnapped him. And they took him to the Carmelites' main house in Toledo. Not the one in Ohio, the one in Arkansas. <laughs> no, Toledo, Spain. And uh, they put him on trial for disobedience. Right? You were given an order. And his answer was simple. Yeah, the Pope's order trumps yours. And their answer was, la, 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 I can't hear you, la, la, la. 
So they sentenced him to imprisonment. They created a cell that they put him in. He couldn't lay down. He could barely sit down. He could kind of squat fetal. Uh, but they packed him in this tiny cell uh, and only gave him bread and water once a day. Uh, every week they removed him from the cell and publicly beat him with a whip. Uh, he was allowed uh, his prayer book and an oil lamp so he could do his prayers. But what a witness said is the lamp, they never put oil in it, right? So they were hitting the rule that says, well, you have to give a monk light to read. You have to give him a lamp. So they gave him a lamp. They just didn't put oil in it. And he said John would have to hold it way up to try to catch some of the light. And, oh, God bless him. Um, what he did, there was one of the monks who kept sneaking him paper. And he would draw and he would write. Um, and what he wrote, oh. Um, sorry, man. Uh, well, I, oh, maybe we should jump to that. What time? Well, okay. Uh, I'll read you what he wrote later. I don't know. This was a dark time in his life. He felt abandoned by God. He didn't believe he was abandoned by God. He felt God's absence. Um, and the absence led to him craving the Lord in a way he didn't know he could. And so for him, this dark night of the soul became the greatest gift God ever gave him. And I'm very simplifying what is extremely complex. But we're talking about years of pain and torture and deprivation when he felt he needed the feeling of God most and didn't get it. Um, and that was his dark night of the soul. He was proceeding on what he believed only. Okay? And, and in fact, I am going to read it. Let me jump down to it. <clears throat> There's a few translations of this, but make no mistake. If you take a... Uh, European poetry class. If you take any kind of poetry class, he's in there, secular or religious. Uh, we read this at the University of Michigan from a poet or a prof who clearly hated the church. Uh, but it is so beautiful and so otherworldly. Okay? And remember, whenever you hear him talk about the night, he's talking about N-I-G-H-T, no K. And he's referring to the absence, the feeling of absence of God and how it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Okay. <clears throat> so this is the, and I'm not a, you know, poet. Okay. Upon the darkened night, the flame of love was burning in my breast. And by a lantern bright, I fled my house while all in quiet rest. Shrouded by the night and by the secret stair, I quickly fled. The veil concealed my eyes while all within me lay quiet as the dead. O night, thou was my guide. O night, more loving than the rising sun. O night that joined the lover to the beloved one, transforming each of them into the other. Upon that misty night in secrecy, beyond such mortal sight, without a guide or a light other than that which burned so deeply in my heart, it was that fire that led me on and shone more bright than that of the midday sun. It led me to where he waited. It was a place no one else could come. Within my pounding heart, which kept itself entirely for him, he fell into his sleep. 
Beneath the cedars there, all my love I gave. From over the fortress walls, the wind would brush his hair against his brow, and with its smoothest hand, caressed my every sense. So I lost myself to him. I laid my face upon my lover's breast. Care and grief grew dim, as in the morning's mist became the light. There they dimmed among the lilies fair. It's this, and the church was horrified by this. This sounded homoerotic to them. But that wasn't his point. He and God snuck away, right? He and God snuck away in his heart and pined for each other, right? And it was that thought, that belief that was his guide, Right, uh, sneaking away from the external horrors to the secret little place in his heart that nobody could touch, and it's just him and Jesus. Uh, and I love that. Oh, night, thou was my guide. Oh, night, more loving than the rising sun, the night that joined the lover to the beloved one, transforming them into each other. Right, powerful stuff. This is what he wrote while he's being beaten and starved. You know, sweet Lord, right? This is that guy, you know? Now, um, he did manage to escape. Uh, It's kind of funny. All we know is he somehow was able to pry his cell door from its hinges, and he got out of there. He got to uh, Teresa's monastery in Toledo, and it took him a long time to recover. And as you'll see, he never did really recover. This is what ultimately uh, leads to his death. Uh, but <clears throat> late in 1979, er, 19, he was sent to be rector of a new college and help the discalced Carmelites there. Um, Now, in 1580, the Pope formally authorized that the Carmelites split into two orders, the Carmelites and the Discalced Carmelites. Okay, this ended the fight. Um, At that time, there were about 500 of these folks living in 22 houses. Um, John went about Spain assisting the Discalced Carmelites, and then in 1591, he got his skin got infected and he died. Um, so, you know, there was tons written about this. He was exhausted, starved, beaten for so long that his body just never really recovered, and he quite got a cut. And his body was so weakened that that was it. Now, after his death, there was all kinds of fights about where to bury him. Everybody wanted him. Yeah. And uh, this is this is so Catholic. They solved it by dividing him in half. Uh, uh, they removed his arms and his legs and uh, his corpse kind of traveled about Spain um, and people venerated. And thank God for this beautiful, sweet, quiet poet, painter, saint, uh, man, you know, this cat. Um, he was beatified by Pope Clement the 10th in 1675. Guys, that's lightning speed for the church. Seriously. I, well, you're not used to it, right? Because now all of a sudden the church is ordaining, uh, or con- uh, what do you call it? They're making saints quickly. 
Uh, but this was shocking speed for back then. Yeah. Um, he is the patron of contemplatives, mystics, po and poets. His feast day is today. San Juan de la Cruz. Uh, so praise God, hey, for St. John of the Cross, um, a man who took his suffering and allowed it to make him holy. One of the things he wrote that I just read again this morning, and it's such a relief to me, right, is, and I remember my confessor pointed me toward this, that one of the things John did was prayed for more suffering in his life. And I told my confessor one time, I'm like, man, I hate suffering. You know, I'll do it, uh, but everybody's gonna know I'm suffering. You know, I'm gonna make sure, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna try. You know, I ain't no bull. Uh, you know, and here's John, give me more. And he said, oh no, Joe, that's a very special and rare call. And then just this morning in his writing, St. John of the Cross actually affirmed that that's not a call for everybody. And if it's your call, oh, you'll know. It's your call to do so, you'll know. But I don't ever encourage people to pray for suffering. I encourage us to pray that we don't run from suffering, um, but don't pray for suffering uh, unless God tells you to, you know? And one of my profs in seminary always said, people will come to him and say, oh, I'm going through the dark night of the soul. And, he, and forgive me, he, this is how he is. He went, no, you're not. <laughs> you're just going through a hard time. A dark night of the soul is crushing, persistent, relentless grief. Um, there is no escape from it. Um, it's not human in origin, and it's not caused by humans. Um, it is a divine grace given to very, very few people. Now, we might use it in common parlance, right, which is fine, but Forgive my candor, but this is Father Paul, right? Father Paul Burke, he always said, you will never meet anyone who went through a dark night of the soul. And if you did, they wouldn't tell you, right? So we want to be careful. I, I think, and I don't know if this is just my thing. So if so, disregard it. But it feels to me like we keep lowering the bar of what is suffering, Right. This isn't I feel sad a lot or I'm struggling with depression, which is very tough cross. This isn't, you know, somebody called me a bad name. This is being physically beaten and starved by people who promised to be your brother. Yeah. Isn't that something? This is uh, your allies trying to torture you to death. Um, that suffering, most of us, I think, will know emotional suffering in our lifetime that these guys probably didn't. Like for us, and I, I don't mean this quote, for us, death hurts. These folks, death is Tuesday, right? Before he was 10, his brother died of starvation. He almost did. His dad died and his mom was in a bad way. So like these, these kind of people, their emotional suffering isn't like ours. When they lost someone, yeah, of course they were sad, but it happened every day, right? I mean, it literally happened every day. So there was a hardness to them in terms of their emotions that we don't have or need, praise the Lord, right? Don't think that's better. You should hurt when someone dies. 
But in terms of their ability to endure physical suffering or social suffering, we will never be able to keep up with them, right? We'd all be dead in this. At least me, I would not have made it to 20, right? Uh, oh, oh, hello. So, uh, you know, I say this because not to make us feel guilty. Don't feel guilty about having a comfortable life. That's what God wants for you. If you think God looked at the Middle Ages and went, that's what I wanted, you're way off, right? But we wanna be careful about using the phrase, I'm going through a dark night. No, you are not. You wouldn't tell me if you were. That's you and Jesus. Um, Does this make sense? And does it sound, I don't wanna demean, not at all, but I'm just, it's amazing how often people think, oh, I'm going through a tough go. It's a real dark night. Well, no, that's just a tough go. And tough goes stink. Make no mistake. But dark night of the soul, man, that's a different breed. That's a whole nother level of suffering. Yeah. Like that one time I got Diet Pepsi when I asked for regular, that was a dark night. It was another time I didn't get what I wanted. <laughs> The whole world paid for that one. Uh, so are there any John of the Cross questions? I didn't look. Uh, Let me scroll back to the top. Uh, Richard Walsh, hey. Uh, hey, brother, we, we love you. That's all I got to say. Um, early Merry Christmas greetings from England. I'm from England. Did you hear that, Carrie? I know you think, oh, is he from? Yeah, I hear it all the time, Richard, from people not from England. Um, <laughs> Last night I gave a lecture on medieval Carthusian monastery in Coventry, England. Oh, right. Richard, you need to come to the U.S. I know. And be on our show. Right. The only thing is, you'll need to learn how to do the accent, the English accent, like I do. Because I'll be honest, you sound kind of fake. <laughs> you know, we're gonna get Sean back on here. Uh, that guy's coming, I think, in May, and oh, I can't yes. wait with his little fake English accent. Right. I've been trying to teach Sean for years uh, white trash accent and I just told him it involves a lot of cursing you know sure now seriously Richard if you ever come to the US we will find you a place to stay in Michigan seriously and we will get you on this show or I will go all Viking on your little English farm <laughs> Uh, the night before we started walking the Camino in Spain, we spent the night at a monastery near the French border. They rented very modern rooms, and we had a delicious restaurant, and it was very inexpensive. The next morning, we got, to, we got up early to go to church and hear them pray chant in Latin. Yeah, it's lovely. I'm telling you. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, when you look, like what you saw, of course, is a modern adaptation. But like... I have a friend who's a female in a contemplative order. So that means she gets to see people once a year, right? Uh, but her room is about the size of four of my desks, right? It's a small single bed, uh, a small wooden chair, and a small desk. And that's her room. Um, yeah, whew. Uh, okay, I'm doing small articles on women doctors of the church for our Council of Catholic Women AOD newsletter. Oh my gosh, AOD is Archdiocese of Detroit uh, and they have an incredible uh, Archbishop Vineyard on. Um, and that's so cool. Uh, maybe when you finish, you could send us a link and we could put it up for our tribe, hey? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
and by the way, thank you for doing that. You know, the church deservedly takes some shots for how women in the church, how women in the church experience the church, right? But there's also credit to be given, right? Uh, that, and I'm not saying one balances the other, but I'm saying like every human you ever meet, like every institution you encounter, it has a history. And that history tends to involve growth and change. Uh, it tends to like, if you, in my history as a human, there were times I did really good, beautiful things. And there are times I've done horrible, sinful things. I'm both of those. Yeah. And um, the church is the same way, right? You look at how the, the Celts treated their women before Christianity and they were basically chattel. I mean, I, I don't even know how else to, um, and, and it really is extraordinary that it was the monks who were came in like, no, those are humans. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Um, okay. So I think that wraps us up for the day. Yes. Huh? Um, I know it's shorter today, but really. so was John. It's one o'clock. Oh, nice. John was short. I have no idea. Spanish people are not short, uh, necessarily. Right. Okay. So what is tomorrow? Oh, tomorrow. I'm a little geeked out. We have a cool guest, Kristen Smith. Um, who I just find to be, uh, and I know this sounds funny, I don't have a better word, an extremely pleasant and peaceful woman. Yes, peaceful. You too? Yes. Oh my gosh, yes. so I can't wait for you to meet her and hear, like, I think she's got some really cool stuff to talk to us yeah. about, and I'm pretty geeked out. Um, she just shines, you'll see, you'll see. We won't even have to turn the studio lights on. <laughs> and not just because of my bald head. So uh, as a favor, I'm asking you to please pray for Uncle Lonnie, Lonnie Applegate, and pray for his dad, Edward. Um, pray for his dad's soul. Pray for Lonnie and Bev and their family and their broken hearts. Okay. Edward was the real deal, guys. I'm serious. Well, he made Lonnie. Uh, right. You know what I mean? Like, you, you don't. A guy like Uncle Lonnie doesn't just happen. You know, um, yeah. Okay. Salad pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Lord. Ugh. What we do to each other, we're so sorry. The fact that so many people could look at St. John of the Cross and not see what we see. It's a real challenge to us, Lord, to think about how we see other people. Maybe the people we mock today or are cruel to today will be the heroes everyone talks about years from now. And maybe if we feel like we're victims of bad talk and conduct, let us find comfort in the fact that you see, you saw John of the Cross even when no one else did. We're so grateful for him and for Teresa of Avila. And we're so grateful for the way community makes us better. It might irritate the snot out of us, Lord, but it makes us better. And for all those, Lord, who suffer because they love you, especially our Catholic brothers and sisters in Nigeria and China, oh, Lord, deliver them, please. And until that day, give them strength. Give them strength. 
we pray in great gratitude for all Carmelites, discalced Carmelites and, and regular Carmelites. Thank you for their commitment to holiness. And thank you that they work through their dark times. So bless us, Lord. Bless us with patience for growth, patience in growth, and patience about growth. And bless us so that we will make beautiful poetry and art with our hearts or our hands, if we have that skill. For all the people we love, Lord, that we fret about, and for all of the circumstances in our lives that we worry about, we give it all to you because we love you so much and we trust you. Lord, even when our hearts are broken, we trust you. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. My Kung Fu is strong. I'll see you crazy people tomorrow. And until then, peace. Is it over? No, it's never over.